Romans chapter 8 is an incredible chapter in the Bible. And if you're struggling or you're uncertain or you're dealing with some personal challenges, Romans chapter 8, that's the place to go to. And in week one, we've discovered that Satan, he's always there. He's trying to hold us down by making us feel guilty. He tries to bring back our past sins and mistakes and failures, and he keeps bringing them up. He's trying to haunt us. So we turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. So we claim that, and because Jesus took that condemnation upon himself. But maybe you're feeling a bit worn out because you've been trying to live a good life. You've been trying to be the type of person that God wants you to be. And as Paul says, you just can't seem to do what you don't want to do, and you don't do what you do want to do. Now, if you think that's a tongue twister, that's straight from the Bible. That's the way Paul said it. He was constantly struggling. But if that's the way you feel, you just can't seem to do the right thing, and you're always doing the wrong thing that you don't want to do, go to Romans chapter 8. It's verse 11. God raised Jesus from the dead, and if God's Spirit is living in you, he will also give life to your bodies that die. God is the one who raised Christ from the dead, and he will give life through his spirit that lives in you. So we're reminded of the truth that the Holy Spirit is living within us. Now Romans chapter 8 is also the place you go to when you are looking for hope. And this question, where is your hope? That is probably one of the most fundamental and also important questions that you will answer. Because where your hope is determines so much about who you are right now. So here's some things that are determined by hope. First of all, it lays the foundation for our personality. What you hope in allows us to have joy and peace, no matter what the circumstances are in our lives at the moment. Or if we put our hope in the wrong thing, then it will lead to stress, depression, and despair. And that's because we've put our hope in something that can be stripped away. We've been put in our hope in something that one day is just not going to be there. So what we put our hope in lays the foundation for our temperament, for our personality. And you know what else having the right hope does? It dictates the purpose of our life. Now, whatever you put your hope in is what you live for. And I can tell you where your hope lies based on what you're living for. So our hope determines the purpose of our life. That's why for some people, they put their hope in money. And that's because they're trying to find their purpose there. That's what they live for. Or maybe people have put their hope in marriage. And that's what they're living for. It's their marriage. It's their children. Or maybe you've put your hope in good health and, and long life. This uh, young couple that I'm going to be performing a wedding for very soon, we're doing some premarital counseling. And one question that they had to fill out on the survey was, I feel confident that we will have a long and healthy life together. And they either strongly agreed or they agreed with that statement. And, and that's the way we begin. We want to have long life. We want to have health. 
But the challenge is that many of us end up putting our hope in something that is inevitably just kind of stripped away. It's just going to happen. That's why the Apostle Paul talks with us about having a living hope, a hope that doesn't die. But whatever you put your hope in ultimately determines what you live for. And here's a third thing that having the right hope does. It determines your ability to endure. Now many of you know this firsthand because it's not a matter of if there are going to be challenges in life. It's a matter of when are they coming. And when it does happen, those challenges lead to despair if we don't have our trust and our hope in Jesus Christ. Because if our hope is in something temporary, something that can and will be eventually stripped away, then the challenges that we face in our lives will just bring despair. But if your hope is in something beyond this life, then you have the ability to endure. You have a strength that you never knew that you had. That's why in Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul talks about a hope that doesn't disappoint. He said that this hope will be there even though other things get stripped away from us. But this is a living hope and it's in the person of Jesus Christ. So in Romans chapter 8, Paul is going to talk about putting our hope in the right thing. And we pick it up in verse 18. And he said, I consider that our present sufferings. Now he uses a general description to describe something that's very personal to us. Present sufferings. It doesn't carry a lot of emotion with it, but we attach something more personal to it. So I ask, what are your present sufferings? And each of us needs to recognize that in our minds and make it more personal. Maybe your personal sufferings or present sufferings are health-related. It could be dealing with your own health or it could be dealing with the health of someone in your family. Jen Padua, who's playing the keyboard here this morning, her brother back in the Philippines is struggling with cancer right now and there's no financial means for him to have treatments. So Jen is raising funding to help pay for her brother's cancer treatments. So maybe health-related is one of the ways that you are experiencing present sufferings. Maybe it's financial in nature. Maybe it's relational. Maybe you're sitting next to your present sufferings right now. So go ahead. Fill, fill in that blank in your mind. What are your present sufferings? Now we all have it, and everywhere we look we see it. It's the husband and wife on our street and you hear them yelling at one another. Or maybe it's the neighbor across your street and you see a for sale sign going on his in front lawn and you know Joe's not been able to keep up his mortgage payments. Or maybe you go to shop at Sobeys and you see a, a single mom. She's working there at the cash and trying so hard to make ends meet for her family. Or maybe... There are just so many different ways that we see that. Maybe it's a coworker who is struggling, really struggling with depression. 
Present sufferings, that's true for all of us. And it's important for us to recognize how scripture deals with it because many times we give the false impression that when you become a Christian, you won't have any sufferings at all. There will be no struggles in your life. People will say that God's going to take control of your life and then you won't have those challenges. You won't have those struggles. So the person becomes a Christian and suddenly they have to deal with present sufferings. And they say, uh, wait a minute here. This isn't what I signed up for. This wasn't supposed to happen. I thought that since I'm on God's team, everything is going to go right in my world. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. It never teaches that in this world, everything is going to be smooth sailing, Christian or unchristian. Jesus said in John 16, in this world you will have trouble. And Paul talks about these present challenges. And he says it's a given. And when they come, what they do is reveal what we've put our hope in. So they show what the foundation of our life is really built upon. That's what storms in life do. Back in October 2019, a team of 10 of us from HCC went on a short-term mission trip to Krakow, Poland, and we visited with Graceland Ministries. And while we were there, four of us went on a one-day tour of the Auschwitz and Birkenau concentration camps. And that was an incredibly sobering experience. First of all, we were taken through an area where we saw all the pictures and we saw real people in those pictures. And then we were taken to all the buildings that we saw in those pictures. And we were taken through the gas chambers. And it was just incredible to be walking through this building that we know that thousands of Jews were put to their death. But one of the people who was a prisoner in Auschwitz was Viktor Frankl. And he was a Jewish-Austrian uh, psychoanalyst. And while he was there, he actually started to study the people that were in that camp and experiencing present sufferings. And he wrote a book about it called Man's Search for Meaning. And he said, first of all, there were those people who responded to having everything stripped away by becoming brutal themselves. And he said they were hard-hearted and cruel. And maybe some of you have experienced that suffering. And, 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 it has, and you've seen it maybe in someone else's life. And you've seen them go cold. They've lost hope. They've become harsh with other people. They don't trust good intentions. And they don't see any good in situations or in people. And that's the way some of us deal with hopelessness. It makes us hard. Another thing he said, he saw a group of prisoners who would do well for a while, everything was going great, but then there would just come a point where they would basically give up. And he said, the symptoms were familiar to those of us who were experienced inmates. And we feared for this moment in our friends' lives. And usually it began one morning when the prisoner simply refused to get dressed or to wash or to go outside for inspection. And there wasn't anything that they could say. There were no blows or threats that had any effect. They just lied there. They had given up. They had lost all hope. 
Now that's how people respond to hopelessness. And usually it happens this way. They put their hope in something that's temporary, something that won't last, something that is stripped away. And when that happens, they just basically give up. Maybe some of you are at that point in life where you feel that way. Maybe you just want to lie there. Maybe you were drugged here this morning and you'd rather be home in TV or home in bed or watching TV. You don't feel like there's a lot of hope. That's how some people respond to present sufferings. If your hope isn't in the right thing. But the other way people responded to hope in those concentration camps was to actually put their hope in what life was going to be like when they got out of that camp. So they would start to think of the money that they used to have, the status that they used to have, achievements, the family that they used to have, and they looked forward to the day when all of that would be restored. But their hope was in something not real. It just wasn't going to happen that way. Those things wouldn't be restored to them. And so he says that the ones who truly overcame Auschwitz were those who had a fixed reference point beyond this world, something that death couldn't touch. And then Frankel said this. He said, life in concentration camps tears open the soul and exposes its depths and foundations. The present suffering show the truth about what we've put our hope in. And if we put our hope in the wrong thing, then it's not good. So the Apostle Paul talks about our present sufferings, and then he's going to challenge us as Christians to remember that our hope is in heaven. So here we go, verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So go ahead, identify your present sufferings, and then compare it to what you'll experience in heaven one day. And Paul says, it's not even worth comparing to the glory that we are going to experience. January 1st, 1972 was a rough day for our family on the farm on PEI. Dad went out early to milk the cows, or to get started milking the cows, and his best cow had died overnight. So that was a lot of money he had just lost and a lot of work to get that cow out of the barn. And then we were back in the house, we were eating breakfast and there was this thunderous crash in the cellar. Now some of you may not know what a cellar is. That's an old-fashioned farmhouse that doesn't have nice ash, or not asphalt, but concrete in the basement. It's just a dugout dirt floor. So we went downstairs and this tank that was collecting our water had crashed to the floor and water was spilling everywhere. The tank had over a thousand liters of water in it. So we had a foot and a half of water on the floor and a lot of money to replace that system with something else. And then mom had bought an electric 
stove, which is something that is common today, but she had moved from a wooden stove. And we had 20 family members coming for dinner that afternoon, and mom's stove broke. And so what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I said, well, mom, you cooked, you cooked for all these years on that wood stove. Let's get some wood, fire it up, and, and she saved the day. But later that year, Dad was talking to one of my uncles, and my uncle asked him, Harold, what type of year was it? And Dad said, it was an incredible year. And then my uncle said, wait now, I was at your house on January 1st, and I heard about all the issues that you were facing. And Dad says, oh yeah, but I kind of forgot about that, because he said the year just turned around after that. It, we were able to buy this 1971 Chrysler New Yorker. It was a second-hand deal that it was amazing. And that car survived my teenage years. It was an amazing car. And then uh, the, all the cows that we had artificially inseminated became pregnant. So it was a great year that way. And then uh, three new heifers, female calves, were born that would turn out to be really good milk cows. Then uh, the weather was incredible and we had this amazing crop of grain and dad was able to actually buy a new tractor, a John Deere. So he said, yeah, you know, the year started off, I kind of forgot about all of that, but the rest of the year was so amazing, that's all that's in my mind. And you know something, that's the perspective that heaven gives us. That doesn't mean that life here on this earth is going to be easy. We may be in pain. We may be struggling with illness and suffering in this life. It could be for 80 years. It could be difficult. But when we get to heaven and we've been there, I can't say how many years because there's no time in heaven, but it's been a long time. And someone asks us about life back on earth. And the person says, Oh yeah, I kind of forgot about all of that. They'd lived for 80 years in chronic pain, but heaven was so wonderful, and they say there's no mourning, there's no sickness, there's no pain, no tears. It's just incredible here. And I've just kind of forgotten about what life was like back on earth. That's why Paul says, our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in heaven one day. St. Teresa of Avila experienced incredible loss in her life, and she endured years of sickness and chronic illness and pain, and towards the end of her life, here's how she summed it up. She sums up her hope. She said, in light of heaven, the worst sufferings on this earth will be seen to be more, excuse me, no more serious than one night in an inconvenient hotel. And I love that picture. In light of heaven, the worst sufferings that we experience here in this world will be like, just like a, a night in a bad hotel. And have you ever done one of those? In September of 2018, I went to Moncton for a two-day vision casting event for Maritime Christian College. And we were told by the executive, go out and rent a really nice hotel room and give us the bill. 
but I am the ultimate servant. And my elders here recognize that. Whenever we go away on retreats, I usually take the poorest room or I'll sleep on a sofa or something like that, and I let them have the nicest rooms. But, well, I'll tell you how that changed. But, so, I got the least expensive motel room in Moncton. And I walked in the room, and there was a funny smell. The floor wasn't clean, and the bathroom wasn't much better. And I decided, okay, I'm going to sleep with my clothes on. I'm going to keep my shoes on the bed. And then wherever I go in the room, I'm putting my shoes on first. The bed was horrible. But I was able to handle that because I knew that a month later, I was going with my wife. I was going to accompany her to Las Vegas for the International FAF Sewing Machine Convention. And I was just like a house husband of Halifax for that week. It was a 50-acre resort. And the room was incredible. There was a golf course. Everywhere you went, people were helping you. I know they were looking for a little money. but And, and then I, I was just sitting around the pool reading one day, and I had put sunblock on, and then I, I wanted to lay down or just turn so that the sun was on my back for a while. And I said, I'm going to get a sunburn. So I sent a text to my wife, and I said, Pat, that when you get to a break, could you come and down to the pool and put some sunblock on my back. Big mistake, because she shared that text with all the other women from Nova Scotia. And 30 minutes later, there was this commotion, and then I heard this loud woman yelling, get your shirt off, we're here to put sunblock on your back. And it drew a little bit of attention. But I've been wondering how we would react to people who ask us to pray for miraculous healing for a Christian who is sick and dying. It's good and it's right to pray for healing and restoration so they can continue to spread God's kingdom here on this earth. But I wonder why we sometimes act like the worst thing that could happen is that they die and go to be with Jesus forever in heaven. This person maybe has lived a long Christian life. And are we putting our hope in this life as opposed to our hope in eternity when we pray that? That's why the Apostle Paul said, look, I don't know. Is it better for me to go to heaven with Jesus or is it better for me to stay here with you? And he's basically saying, I'm torn on this. And then he says, of course it's better for me. I want to be in heaven with Jesus. But it's good for me to be here right now with you. Fulfilling what God has called me to do here on this earth. Yes, it's good to bring God's kingdom here on this earth, to make a difference here. But our hearts are set on heaven because that's where our hope is. Picking up in verse 22. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too 
Wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. So notice how Paul uses a metaphor here when he talks about how we should deal with our present sufferings and and how we can have hope in the midst of that. And the metaphor is that it is like being in the pains of childbirth. Now experts tell us that the two most painful things for the average, I can't say person, would be the average woman to experience are childbirth and passing a kidney stone. Betty Ann Giffen was one of our charter members here. And I went to visit, and she experienced both of those. And I went to visit her in the hospital after she had a kidney stone removed. And she said, yes, Greg, kidney stone is worse than giving birth. But how people process that pain is very different, isn't it? You know that it's possible after giving birth for a mother to say, Let's do this again. Now, it's not going to happen right there in the delivery room. There will be some delay, maybe. But they will say, let's do this again. Betty Ann did it again five times. They had five sons. But you never hear someone say, when they've just passed a kidney stone, oh, maybe God will bless me with another kidney stone. That that just doesn't happen. The pain is intense with both, but the outcome is very different. One leads to a baby, the other one leads to a kidney stone. Very different outcomes. One old man showed me the kidney stone that they pulled from him one time. He had saved it in a bottle. I'll show you how big it was. But it was frightening. But the process of suffering is very different because we know what's on the other side. And that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. There are these present sufferings, yes, but like the pain of childbirth, they lead to something beautiful. Bertrand Russell was a philosopher and outspoken atheist early in the 20th century. And when he was 81 years of age and his health was deteriorating, he was interviewed by a British radio station. And the interviewer asked him, now that you're coming to the end of your life, what do you have to hang on to when death is so close? And this is how he responded. It was in a very honest but hopeless way. He said, I have nothing to hold on to but grim, unyielding despair. And I appreciate his honesty, and that takes a certain amount of intellectual honesty to say, that's the reality of my life. I've put my hope in this world. Everything that I've put my hope in is being stripped away from me. It's all going to be gone so that I don't have anything to hang on to. And I I hope that that person doing the interview was a Christian and they took advantage of that opportunity to share the gospel with this man. And that's what Paul's saying. If your hope is in heaven, then the suffering of this life is just like the pains of childbirth. But if your hope is not in heaven then life can feel like the passing of a kidney stone. Now in verse 23 explains where we also find hope. And it's because we're not left alone to navigate through these present sufferings in our life. And that's because we've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit 
who he describes here, and I love this, as a foretaste of future glory. So it's as if the Holy Spirit gives us a preview of coming attractions. So we pick up in verse 26. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. And do you read that? Can you grab hold of that this morning if you need to? For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for. But the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. So the Holy Spirit prays for us. That's an amazing person to have praying for you. And it actually says when things are a mess in your life, when you have the deepest pain and you just don't know how to pray, he becomes our divine translator. He knows the deepest parts of who we are and he speaks to God on our behalf. He connects our prayer our hearts to God. And some of you are in this right now. You've experienced these present sufferings to such a degree that you try to pray and nothing comes out. Things are such a mess and you're so broken that you don't even know what the right next thing to do is. You're not even sure what to pray for. And God, he knows. And the Holy Spirit picks it up and he says, let me talk to God for you. He's the divine translator. Majed Sultani, who probably greeted you at the door this morning, when he and his family first showed up here, he was translating every word that we were saying in the service into Kurdish for his mother and father-in-law who had come to visit. And just a little over a month after they arrived, they ended up becoming believers. And Majed kept on translating that way after that, but then he realized, I'm not actually really hearing the words right now. They're just coming in my ears and going out my mouth. So he started listening and then going home and actually summarizing what we said. And a short time later, he became a believer. But something I loved about the times when we were in their home doing Bible studies, I would say something in English and then he would translate but there were times when he would smile. And I know it was either I had said something a little off, or maybe he was thinking, I can say that in a better way than you can so that they can understand it. And you know, that's the way it is with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit knows us deeply, and he's one with God. And so he prays for us. And Paul says when the Holy Spirit prays, he has a tone. And he actually refers to it here as groaning. So that's the sound that you would hear if you could hear the Holy Spirit. And that word is more literally translated as a strong heartfelt desire. Another way it's translated is begging with tears. And I love that because that shows how much the Holy Spirit cares for me. He has this strong, heartfelt desire. He's begging for me with tears. He's talking to God on my behalf because he wants to see my life align with what God's will is for me. He wants to speak to God on my behalf. So hope is one of the key words in this passage. And another key word is wait. 
and it's used three times. In verse 23, he says, we wait eagerly. And then in 25, he says, we wait patiently. So it, it, we're waiting confidently at this time. And then in verse 19, he says, all of creation waits in eager expectation. So there are present sufferings. And if we put our hope in the wrong thing, then it's going to lead to despair. But we've put our hope in Jesus. And so we wait with all of creation for the day when God's glory will be revealed. And doing some research on this phrase, I found how eager translation, eager expectation is best translated. It's breathless with excitement or gazing eagerly as with an outstretched neck. So as you're trying to see something, you're anticipating it, and you're just stretching your neck as best you can. And this is the big difference that hope makes. We are breathless with excitement. We wait eagerly for this day. And can you see how different life would look if our hope was truly in heaven? If we took the time each day to set our hope on those things that are eternal to remind ourselves that it's not in this world, but it, it's not in this life. If we did that as a church, we would be marked. We would be a people that are breathless with anticipation, that are waiting with excitement, that would describe who we are now because of the hope that we have later. So your present sufferings, they're here, but the hope that you have is in heaven. And if you're a Christian then you realize that what we experience here in this life, it's not worth comparing. We call on the Holy Spirit who lives in us and gives us that breathless excitement because of what God has done for us. And we wait with eager anticipation for the day when God will reveal his glory. So do you have that hope? Or is your hope in something else, something that isn't going to last, something that is going to be torn away from you when your life on this earth ends? If there's a decision you need to make, you can come to the front and share it with me. You can talk to me or to our associate pastor, James Stevenson, on the way out or any of our other people on staff or leaders. But make that decision if you don't have your hope in Jesus Christ.